So Revelation 16. We're fixing to have the uh, seven bowls of wrath poured out. And again, for anybody that is listening out there, my perspective is that the three sets of seven in Revelation, the seals represent the authentication of the king, the trumpets are the announcement of the arrival of the king, and then the seven bowls of wrath, which we'll get tonight, are the king taking vengeance on his enemies. So, 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Okay, all of these seven things are prefigured in Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So the first uh, bowl of wrath is prefigured exactly in uh, Exodus 9. Here in Revelation, we don't have the actual soot from the kiln, but uh, the effect is the same. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Okay, stop there for a minute and unpack some of this. Uh, Again, water into blood is the first plague that happens in Egypt. And it takes two two bowls of wrath here to get a complete uh, coverage. The first one is the sea. Now, it isn't really clear what the sea means here. In most biblical references, the sea, where it's not allegorical for peoples, you know, nations, speaks of the Mediterranean. Okay? So this may be limited to the Mediterranean. It, it, isn't, it isn't necessarily automatic that all the oceans and all the world get turned into blood. Uh, in, in fact, I don't think they do, but that's just what I think. I don't have any backup for it other than the typical meaning here is the Mediterranean and all the rest of Scripture, and I don't know of any reason why it would change, although it might. Verse 5, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Now, that ought to just stop you right now, right there. Because that's the basis for paganism. Yeah, what pagans, especially, you know, back at the time of Babylon and the flood, they didn't not believe in God. They simply didn't believe that God was personally involved with them. And they believed that God dealt through bureaucrats, spiritual bureaucrats, to handle all of the many things that went on on the earth. So you had a God of the winds, and you had a God of uh, crops, and you had a God of this and a God of that. Now, these people are not stupid. okay? And in fact, the people back there are probably, on average, brighter than we are because they're closer to the creation. In other words, 
we don't evolve up, we devolve down as time passes. So these are bright people, and one of the things that you sort of have in this sort of offhand comment is that, oh, God has an angel that's in charge of the waters. Whatever that means. Okay, I don't know what that means. But you can see that that certainly the mindset of a pagan who says, okay, there's an angel in charge of the river, and there's an angel in charge of the trees, and there's an angel in charge of the wind, and there's an angel in charge of this, that, and the other thing. And, oh, by the way, when we need something to happen in agriculture, we don't need to go bother God with that. We'll just go to the bureaucrat who's in charge and ask him for some rain. Okay? Again, am I saying it so it makes sense? And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you don't talk to my bureaucrats, you talk to me. In other words, I want to have direct relationship with you. I don't want you to go through any of the bureaucrats. So God says, don't do that. But you can see here how it would come about. All right, so anyway, the, the angel in charge of the waters, and he says, Just are you, O Holy One, who was and who is. Ding, 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 ding. We're missing something, aren't we? Yeah, is to come. In other words, the normal way that that runs trippingly off your tongue, if you've read the Bible or has been in church any length of time, is who was and who is and who is to come. That's how you would normally refer to God or Messiah. Well, just are you, O Holy One, who was and who is, who, try again, who is and who was, is to come, isn't there because he's here. Okay? He just, up. He, he just showed up. That was what happened at the seventh trumpet, is that he shows up and puts his feet on the earth, so he's here. And so, again, everything sort of matches the, the scenario that we're setting up. Verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I have no idea what that means. There's a cross-reverence in, in my Bible, and it refers, of course, back to the people who are under the altar. But again, we said last time, I said last time, I don't, you don't have to believe it, this is what I said, you can believe it or not. It, it's my belief that the people who were under the altar in chapter 6 were part of the first resurrection when Yeshua's feet hit the ground at the seventh trumpet. Okay, That's the first resurrection. And I am assuming that everybody who is dead in Messiah at that point gets raised. And I'm assuming furthermore, back in the previous chapter where you've got the, the folk singing the song of Moses, it was my opinion that those people are people who died between the first resurrection, which basically cleared all the righteous out of, out of wherever they're kept, and then you have people who die subsequent to that, so they are then hanging around now waiting for the second resurrection. All I'm doing is reading the, you know, reading the thing in sequence, and if you take it in sequence, that makes sense. If it's not in sequence, it's wrong. Okay, and, you know, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not being real dogmatic about it, but it makes sense to me. So, even so then, we do have people who are killed who are in heaven at the throne, and they're hanging around the altar, and they're singing the song of Moses. So you can see that those might be the ones who say in verse 7, Yes, Lord the Almighty, 
true and just are your judgments. In other words, echoing the angel who's in charge of the war. That's my surmise. I, I you know, have no better authority for it than it makes sense to me, and if, and if you don't like it, by all means, roll your own. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was loud to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. I don't believe that there is a plague of sunshine in Egypt. Well, we'll get to darkness in a minute. That darkness will be repeated. But I don't believe that there's a plague of sunshine in Exodus. So this one, this one is new for the, the grand finale, if you will. And it's interesting that apparently the people on earth know what's going on. And rather than turning to God, they shake their fist and curse and don't give him glory. Of course, from my perspective, and I'm a believer and everybody here are believers, that's, you know, taking pills for stupid. You know, they, they, and they persist. So verse 10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores they did not repent of their deeds. Okay, so these things appear to be cumulative. Because remember what happened in Egypt, you'd have a plague, and then you'd have a hiatus, and things would get cleared up, and everybody get healed up and so forth, and then they get the next plague. That doesn't seem to be what's happening here. So the sun is cooking everybody, they're then plunged into darkness, and oh, by the way, they still got all the boils that they had from the first one. So anyway, they're, they're sitting there with their boils in the dark, sweltering, and cursing God. And as I say, I can't imagine that, but they're doing it. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, so what's, what appears to be going on here, the sixth angel dries up the Euphrates. Now, let's, let's set the scene here. We've had the angel that flies over the whole earth, three angels, and they basically say, whatever you do, don't take the mark of the beast, worship God. The beast is going out and doing his counterfeit mark. So he's getting everybody marked, and, and, and you can't buy or sell except that you've got the mark of the beast. So you've got the empire of the beast is in full swing on the earth at this point. What's going to happen here is, as these unclean spirits come out of the Euphrates, they are going to be sent off, and what they're going to do is they're going to talk the kings of the world into rallying behind the beast at Armageddon. 
Again, did I say that so it made sense? That, that's what I think is going on there. Basically, Satan is going to send out these spirits like frogs, and they're going to go whisper in the ears of the kings of the earth. And the kings of the earth are then going to come and join the beast for the battle of Armageddon. The Exodus story. That might even match. The- oh, okay. That, that's, a, that's a very good comment. That's a very good comment. The comment was that the people who, in the midst of the plagues, instead of repenting or cursing God, they may be in a position analogous to Pharaoh in the Exodus. And what happened with Pharaoh in the Exodus is, at the beginning of the Exodus, before everything started, Moses went into him and said, let my people go, my God wants them. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God, I'm not going to let them go. And, and the way I always describe this is, it's like wrestling with a bear. You've got a choice as to whether you get into the cage with a bear or not. But once you get into the cage, then it's up to the bear when the, when the wrestling match is over. So Pharaoh, when he says to Moses, nope, don't know your God, not going to play. At that point, he of his own free will gets into the cage with the bear. From then on, it's up to the bear when the dance is over. And the bear has got ten plagues that he's going to play out. And so as the plagues play out, Pharaoh loses his nerve. And so what God does is then hardens his heart to prop him back up so that the rest of the plagues can, can play out. So the sequence of events was Pharaoh hardens his own heart, gets into the ring with God. At that point, God says, okay, here we go. We're going 10 rounds, whether you like it or not. And oh, by the way, at this point, once you come in, I'm going to make sure that your heart stays hard until we're finished. And so what may be happening here with the uh, people cursing God in the midst of the plagues is they may be very much in the same position as Pharaoh was in the Exodus, which is to say we had the angels fly over and give notice to everybody. All right, here are the rules of the game. If you take the mark, you've got a real problem. Okay, so these people take the mark, and at that point, God may say, okay, you made your choice. I got seven bowls of wrath coming, and you're gonna you're gonna take them all. Okay, that very well could be. That's an excellent comment. Very good. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, "It is done." And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, in Greek it's a talent, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Okay couple of things. We're going to see later on, or actually we saw in there, that no mountains were to be found. What do you suppose that is? I don't know. But again, I'm surmising. Because remember, before the flood, all of the earth was in one contiguous mass. After the flood, at the time of Peleg, things were cast apart. The continents split apart. 
In other words, God put people on little rafts, of, big rafts of continent, and shoved them apart to keep them from getting back together again. The geologists, of course, say that happened over millions of years. I'm not convinced that it didn't happen just right rickety-tick. You know, God just went down with his fingers and went like this, which is why you've got mountains shoved up as the Americas were split off from Europe. You notice that the leading edge of, of the Americas, which is the Andes Mountain and the Rockies Mountain, are shoved up, and I think God just took that thing and shoved it, and just everything stacked up very quickly. One possibility, possibility, I'm just guessing, is he may be putting stuff back together. Because remember, we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth out of this. And so it isn't at all beyond the realm of possible that what he's doing at this point is rearranging continents again. Okay, so anyway, that's, that's the seven bowls of wrath. Now, what we're going to have is one of these hiatuses, because remember... It, back in verse 19, the great city was split into half, into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Okay, which tells me that places like San Francisco and New York and all those places are all these skyscrapers and so forth uh, are coming down. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay, so now what's going to happen in 17 is we are going to expand on verse 19 in chapter 16. We've done the seven bowls. Seven bowls are done. All right, now we're going to go back and we've got to catch up because this is what happens to Babylon in that process. 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. In order to find that, where you need to go is to Jeremiah 51. And I'm going to read it from the beginning, I think. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Leb Kamai, and I will send Babylon and I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty her land, and they shall come against her from every side on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, let him not stand up in his armor, spare not her young men, devote to destruction all her army, they shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans, and wounded in her streets, for Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. All right, now, that's the reason I wanted to start at the beginning, because Babylon did not conquer Israel, it conquered Judah. Remember, Israel, the ten northern tribes, was conquered by the Assyrians. Judah is the one that was conquered by Babylon. But here, Jeremiah says in verse 5, For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. So again, what that hints to me is that perhaps the destruction here is more than just what was done by the Medes and the Persians. This is end-time destruction. I'm going to skip forward now to verse 
12. Still in Jeremiah 51. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon, make the watch strong, set up watchmen, prepare the ambushes, for the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come, the thread of your life is cut. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, surely I will fill you with men, as many as locusts, and they shall raise the shout of victory over you. So what I'm suggesting to you here is this idea of Babylon on many waters and, and so forth goes back at least to Jeremiah, and I'm sure it goes back before that. Let me keep reading. I'm back in Revelation 17 now. I'm in verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit to, the, to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. All right, there's our beast again with seven heads and ten horns. Okay, it's the same one as happened back earlier in Revelation. The same number of heads, the same number of horns. Except here we're going to get an explanation. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Yeshua. Okay, whole bunch of stuff there. First off, Babylon did not martyr the saints of Yeshua. Okay, that was Rome. You know, the big, the big Christian martyrdom happened under Rome. Babylon wasn't involved. So what I'm suggesting to you is Babylon is metaphorical here, not literal. And Babylon specifically represents the mixture of government and false religion. And ever since Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, governments have turned to religion to prop up their legitimacy. So you get a government and you find some sycophant in a church, and that sycophant in the church will say, look at that king, the very image of God. Fall down and worship him. Or words to that effect. So what Babylon then represents is this whorish mixture of church and government, where the church cleaves to the power of the state, and the two of them work together to oppress humanity. And God reserves calling people sexually immoral who worship other gods. In other words, this this goes back all the way to uh, Sinai, and remember, we've talked at Sinai where Israel standing at the foot of the mountain was intended to be the consummation of a marriage. The marriage contract was given and accepted in Exodus 19. Three days later, they were to stand at the foot of the mountain. And what normally happens in a marriage consummation is that the husband puts something into the wife with the intention of passing on life. And what God wanted to do was write his word on the heart of Israel, which would bring life. Israel said, stop. If you keep talking to us, we'll die. 
Moses, you go talk to him and, tell, and come back and tell us what he said. And that's when we got tablets of stone, which is a metaphor for hearts of stone. But the point is, God regards certainly Israel, and I think ultimately all humanity, as being married to him. And so, worshiping false gods and accepting the seed of another, he regards as, a, as adultery. And so Babylon then is a whore because basically she will breed with any false god as long as it increases her power and her influence. That's why he calls her a whore. But did I say all that so it was reasonably clear? See, I'm at the second half of verse 6, making great progress. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Aha! So we're going to get all these symbols explained to us now. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Hmm. Who was and is not and is to come? Yeah. What this reads like is very much like a counterfeit of Yeshua. Yeshua walks the earth. He dies. He's raised from the dead. He gets sucked up into the overhead. And then he will come again in the future. Which, of course, at this point in Revelation, that future is here. So this idea of, of a beast who is doing the same thing as a counterfeit to what Yeshua did is, at least to me, makes a great deal of sense. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Okay, let's go back and unpack this. Now, I, I will tell you, I don't know what the current incarnation of this is. I mean, most people who read this impute it to Rome. Because Rome is a city on seven hills. I don't think it is Rome. I, well, let me put it another way. I think it was Rome then. I think it's somebody else now. I think it may be somebody yet again in the future. Because what happens with Babylon, and remember this is all in reference to Babylon, and the woman is sitting on the beast. She's riding the beast. Okay. So false religion is riding empire. So the false religion starts in Babylon at the time of the flood, or right after the flood. And the gods of Babylon then steadily move west, changing names slightly. 
So you go back to the Babylonian gods, you then find that the same gods have been slightly renamed and they're the Greek gods. And they get slightly renamed again and they become the Roman gods. So what this woman does as she rides the beast is she follows the power of empire. And so at the time this was written, the seat of empire was Rome. And perhaps, hence the seven hills. The seat of empire is no longer Rome. And I don't know whether we're talking about some version of the European Union, whether we're talking about the United Nations, whether we're talking about the British Empire, whether we're talking about the United States. I don't have any idea who we're talking about when this finally goes down. What I do know we're talking about when this finally goes down is false religion riding empire. And and wherever that happens to be is where it'll be. So you've got now seven mountains, which are the seven heads. There are also seven kings. But then the ten horns are yet ten more kings. Okay, does that so make sense? You got, you got the seven heads that are representative of seven kings, and we've got the business with, you know, five of whom have fallen, the other one has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. I have no idea what that means. I mean, I don't know what... Back up. I, I have an idea what it means. I don't know who it is. And as I have said before, as we go through this, it's great indoor sport to, you know, try and put these prophecies on current events. And as, as Ray read earlier out of Bullinger, he was trying for the League of Nations. Uh, people have tried for the Roman Empire. And I, I, whenever it finally goes down, it will be obvious who it is. But until it finally goes down, I don't know that it will be. So now we're in verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, so what he's saying here is, first off, that the empire at some point will cast off false religion. That isn't to say that empire will then go to true religion. It's simply that they will cast off organized religion. And God puts enmity in their hearts so that they will do that. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What that city is, is again unknown. Uh, To to sort of wrap this up then, uh, the woman is then a great city. It is not not necessarily literal Babylon on the Euphrates. Could be again. Saddam Hussein, before he got sanded off flat, was in the process of rebuilding Babylon and viewed himself as the heir to Nebuchadnezzar. So the fact that the empire has moved over the centuries and the seat of the false religion has moved over the centuries doesn't mean it can't go back somewhere that it's already been. But at the point we are in Revelation, I have no idea where it is. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose 
for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.